A woman sits alone in her apartment in a workers' tenement block in East Berlin. She's waiting. Any minute now, three people will come through that door and everything in her life will change again. She's in her early 70s, small and slight, well-dressed, always well-dressed, even at home, and her fading blonde hair is styled unusually with a low parting on one side and brushed over into a smooth, short, boyish cut. She's never changed the style. How could she? The great playwright Bertolt Brecht had asked her to wear it that way 50 years before, and she wasn't going to alter it for anyone. The doorbell rings, and she gets up to answer it. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece, and this is episode 14, An Interview in Köpenick. persuaded my family to go on holiday to Germany. We rented an apartment in Berlin, and while my husband and kids explored the city for a couple of days, I made my way to Frankfurt, where I had booked a hotel for myself for a night. It's in Frankfurt that I had arranged to meet two women who I knew would be essential for my story about the making of Mädchen in Uniform. Germany had only recently welcomed with open arms people fleeing from the Syrian war, and when I arrived in Frankfurt train station, I found myself among families of puzzled refugees meandering around the concourse. I walked through the city that felt like two cities, a slick financial quarter insulated within a messier, more unpredictable downtown area. I was looking for the Kinotech Asta Nielsen, an organisation that promotes the work of women filmmakers. That's where Carola Gramman and Heide Schluckmann were based, the two women I'd arranged to interview. I found it just behind the main shopping precinct, had passed the unobtrusive door several times before I worked out where I was. I had been nervous about meeting them. They were, as far as I was concerned, the world authority in a film that I had come to rather late. I felt they owned it intellectually and that maybe I had no right to it. But from the moment I entered their upstairs office, I felt so welcomed and comfortable that I let myself get excited about what was to come. I knew there was a great story ahead, but I wasn't sure at that point what it would be. Carola and Haida were immensely likeable right from the start. Carola, small, lively, with a warm, cultured voice. Haida, tall, poised and thoughtful. They had been pioneers in feminist and lesbian film criticism and devoted their lives to the subjects. I came at things from a very different angle. A journalist, non-political, not, shall we say, personally sexually invested in the film. Would they mind? And so I asked them, how did you come across this movie? How did it start for you? At this stage, it was Carola's story, and this is how it goes. In the mid-70s, Carola Graman was a student at what was then the Polytechnic of Central London. Feminist film appreciation as an academic interest was literally just taking off, and she read an article about a film called Mädchen in Uniform in an American journal. Despite it being a German film, she'd never come across it and didn't expect to. And what's more, there was no one to interview. Leontine Zagen, the director, had died a few years before in South Africa at the age of 85. Its writer, Krista Winslow, had been murdered during the war. And its lead actress, Hertha Thieler, had, according to the article, committed suicide at some point in East Berlin. And then she got a break. 
A friend had read that Mädchen in Uniform was due to be shown on TV in the southwest region of Germany that December. Carola made the nearly 500-mile journey to her friend's house in Frankfurt and settled with the family in front of the TV to watch the movie. Her response to it sounded so familiar to me. I saw the film and I fell in love with it, she told me. But I was very sad that there was nobody around to talk to about it. Three years later, Carola, this time with Haida, went to the Berlin Film Festival, where they got to interview Renato Krusner for the feminist magazine Frauen und Film. Krusner was the star of the East German movie Zolo Zani, which had taken the festival by storm. By chance, the two women mentioned Mädchen in uniform to her during the interview. Krusner knew exactly what they were talking about. She told them that its star, Hertha Thiele, was not only alive, but appearing on East German TV. They couldn't believe their ears. Their link to this forgotten film was still around, and you never know, maybe even contactable. It was 1980. The Berlin Wall was still very much up, and travelling from one half of this divided city to the other was no easy task. Carola and Haider wrote to the East German Ministry of Culture. It took half a year to be given the permission to come over to the Soviet-run side. And even then, they were interviewed by the ministry and even asked if they would work for the Stasi, which they politely declined. The two women were given a four-day visa and even then had to come back every day across the border, driven in a large black government car. The amounts of red tape for this interview were astonishing, with border guards questioning why they carried a tape recorder, even briefly taking the recorded tapes away from them at one point. They were assigned a chaperone from the ministry, a woman who was to stay with them at all times and sit in on the interviews with Hertha. And they got to her finally. They were taken to the old town of Köpenick, an outlying district of Berlin, where in the 20s a huge workers' settlement was built, tall tenement blocks capable of housing thousands of city residents. Here, Hertha Thiele, once the face on magazine covers and idolised around the world, now lived in a very modest two-room apartment by herself. When she opened the door, Carola and Haida were lost for words. She looked just the same. She had the haircut of Annie in Kulavampa, recalled Carola. She said Bert Brecht had cut it like this and she had kept it like this. So there she was. She had baked an apple tart and made coffee and we started our interview. Still the same voice, so witty, such good humour. Also present at that interview was Herta's doctor, because she later told the two visitors she didn't trust the authorities and needed someone with her. And so Herta told them her story. She had gone into exile in Switzerland as soon as the Nazis came into power, but she didn't have permission to work there as an actress because refugees were not allowed certain jobs, and so she was employed as an assistant in the lab of a photoshop. As soon as the war ended, she fulfilled a lifelong dream and went to live in Paris. From here, she visited her sister and brother-in-law in Leipzig. It was while in this city, at that point one of the biggest in East Germany, that the authorities asked her to come back and stay permanently as a Verdienstekunstler, or an artist, with a state pension. Her proven anti-fascist background had made her very welcome in Soviet-run East Germany. She wasn't altogether keen to move back, but two things persuaded her. Her age and her desperation to return to acting, which had never left her. She was given a flat, rent-free, and settled behind the Iron Curtain. 
But Hertha still had a Swiss passport through a second marriage to a Swiss communist who wanted to work with her in establishing an avant-garde theatre. Carola and Heide soon discovered that Hertha was not comfortable talking about her private life or indeed anything that she suffered during the war and very little was divulged about this marriage. Her first husband, said Carola, was the love of her life and when the two West Germans had arrived at Hertha's flat they were surprised to see the name on the nameplate by the door as Tila Klingenberg. Heinz Klingenberg, if you remember, was the handsome actor that Hertha had been married to at the height of her fame in the early 30s. Carola and Heide discovered what I'd suspected, that this uncompromising young woman had left him because of his willingness to make Nazi propaganda films. Hertha was also not comfortable talking in front of the ministry chaperone, who had to be present during the interviews. For all her socialist principles, she was never wholly at ease with the levels of state control and interference of East Germany. On a couple of evenings during this precious four-day run of interviews, they could see that the ministry chaperone was getting edgy and wanted to leave as it was seven o'clock. The two visitors persuaded her to go home, saying that they would leave any minute. Reluctantly, the official left, and as soon as she was gone, the atmosphere changed and Hertha could let her hair down. Hertha fetched beer, sausages and potato salad, and they were free at last. Those were happy evenings, recalled Carola and Haida. She was open and friendly, very easy company. There was nothing of the diva about her, Haida noted. Nothing fancy at all about the way she was living. Her home was very modest and simple, not at all how you'd imagine the apartment of an artist. She was often in pain, they noticed, with aching joints, but always sat with perfect posture, and later, when the cameras were on her, they would notice how she would come alive. And so those four evenings eventually filled eight cassettes worth of interviews. Haida recalled, She was still very political in her mind. I was really impressed because you don't get this with many famous actresses. There were also contradictions, they noticed, especially about Karl Fröhlich. On the one hand, she had loved the German director. He had helped her career, and she approved that he was supervising the project that was Machen in Uniform. On the other hand, she criticised his choice of title for the film. She also lost her job because of him, or certainly he didn't stop her being kicked out of Germany's Nazi-controlled film industry. Hertha told her interviewers that she recalled working with him on another film that was shot on the Baltic Sea. When a Nazi march went past with all its banners, Fröhlich was the first to raise his hand. Hertha had been very popular in Germany as a young actress, had been a so-called Liebling, a darling of the masses. But she'd never fitted into the image of the blonde Nazi icon. She was not a classic sex symbol of the time, but, as Carola suggested, more a poster girl for the new objectivity. They could have played on her popularity and shaped her into an icon, but, like Marlene Dietrich, she refused to work for the Nazis and left. She left the day of the Machtergreifung, the Nazi seizure of power, and got over the Swiss border before it was more rigorously controlled. Having refused the offers of work, she had been sent a letter accusing her of all manner of crimes against the state. She admitted to only one, she told Carola and Haida, and that was having had sex with a Jewish person. Hetta was principal to the end, I was told. She had chosen not to live in West Germany after the war because she felt that the film industry was still full of Nazis. 
but it was thanks to her Swiss passport that she could travel and get away from the poverty and constraints she lived under in the East. Every year, and my heart leapt when I was told this, she went to meet her old friend and fellow Machen cast member Dorothea Wieck, who was living in West Berlin. She had to do this by travelling to Switzerland and then re-entering Germany from there. Dorothea, like Hertha, was single and poor and lonely. She had put on weight, said Hertha, and didn't like being seen outside. Nonetheless, the two women would meet up once a year, go out to a cafe for cake, and presumably sit among diners who had no idea of the former cult status of the two middle-aged women in their company. Eventually, Dorothea didn't want to meet any more, and died aged 78 in West Berlin in 1986. She too, like Hertha, had lived off occasional appearances in TV dramas. So, what about Hertha Thiele and her specific memories of making Machen in uniform? I've said in previous episodes that both Leontine, the director, and Krista, the writer, found they became somewhat typecast as the makers of girls' school films and plays, and lived a little in its shadow. But Hertha never regretted a moment of it. She was proud of her role in this gem of a movie. The interviews she gave Carola and Haida in Köpenick and later in Frankfurt were invaluable to what we know of the making of the movie. And there are so many colourful side stories that came out over the beer and potato salad. For example, while she was heterosexual and had many, many affairs, she revealed that she loved, as Carola tells it, being adored by all these lesbians. She visited Krista Winslow in Munich and Krista adored her too. Hertha might have had her differences with the directorial style of Leontine Zagen, but she revealed to her interviewers that she got round it by playing to the camera alone. She knew that the man behind the camera, Franz Weimer, who would go on to become a prolific and celebrated cinematographer, fancied her and that she could simply focus intensely on him while she performed. I've used much of Hertha's anecdotes for my episodes on the filming of Machen in Uniform. You can find transcripts of later interviews online. What you'll see is an amalgamation of many interviews into one, but it'll certainly give you a flavour of what passed between the women. And so, what happened next? Carola and Haida's four allotted days were over. They had met an exceptional person, someone who a year ago they didn't even know was alive. There was a growing resurgence of interest in her film, not least because of a very highly regarded reassessment of it by the American feminist scholar B. Ruby Rich in the film journal Jump Cut. Interest was growing in this lost masterpiece. It was time to bring Hertha back in front of an audience. Carola and Heide arranged for a retrospective. It took place at the Film Museum Cinema in Frankfurt. Hertha Thiele took her usual route via Switzerland, where she went shopping for her outfit. The two women met her at the train station and were blown away to see this glamorous image stepping onto the platform. She was all in white, wearing a hat of white feathers. She had thought it all through, she told them. In the final scenes of the film, Manuela was wearing a white dress. When she walked onto the stage to be interviewed following the screening, she wanted the audience to make the link and see her in white again. In 1983, she was invited to take part in a special screening of the film for the Berlin International Film Festival as part of a retrospective called Six Actors in Exile. She was put up at the swanky Kempinski Hotel. One day, Carola and Haida went to visit her in her hotel room, 
only to discover that she'd been crying. They had never seen her so unhappy. Why? I asked them. Was she lonely? Maybe, they said. Her sister and brother-in-law had died by then, and she'd been very close to them. But no, it was something else. I think Herta knew that her career had ended by living in exile, explained Carola to me. What she did for East German television was not the artistic acting that she wanted. Maybe she realised how poor she was, particularly at the Kempinski, where all these people were pretending to have money. Yes, maybe that was the place where it hit her, in that hotel room, that when she had removed herself from Germany all those years ago and resolutely refused to have anything to do with the Nazis, she had, without knowing it, more or less given up such a promising career. Indeed, if you check out her filmography online, you'll see that gaping hole between her last film in pre-war Germany, Elizabeth und der Nahe, 1934, and her next appearance in an East German TV movie in 1967. That's 33 years between films. Like Dietrich, she had said no to the Nazis. Unlike Dietrich, she had almost instantly disappeared. To be in front of appreciative cinema audiences once again, to have her work from all those years ago recognised as great, must have felt sweet. And yet utterly crushing for someone who had wanted to act from her very earliest youth and who just for a moment had known international adulation. Carola and Haida kept in touch with Hertha to the very end. Her last months were spent in a hospital bed. She had her own room in a psychiatric clinic, not because she needed mental health care, but because the doctor who ran it was a good friend and took her in under his care. She died in that hospital at the age of 76, just four years after Carola and Haida had come to interview her in her little flat in Köpenick. And so the only link to Machen in uniform was lost. True, there were other minor characters who were probably still around. In fact, Carola and Haida were told of one, a very elderly lady who had been one of the schoolgirls in the film. They arranged a private viewing for her and her family. The old lady, who claimed to have never seen the film, couldn't quite grasp that the girl running around the corridors in this black-and-white movie was actually her. They are all gone now, the excitable children on that staircase, the fierce headmistress, the beautiful teacher, the sensitive schoolgirl, and the woman who brought that story to life and the woman who originally conceived it. None of them had children, not the lead actors, not the writer and director, so I have never had the pleasure of speaking to any direct descendants and telling them how much I admired their mother or grandmother. I wish I could. I wish I could tell them how wonderful their film is. I wish I could tell them that it's still as exceptional today as it was then, that it still speaks to people as clearly and as movingly. They were extraordinary women. They didn't know it, but how else can you explain such an extraordinary film? It goes without saying that I want to thank Carola Grumman and Heide Schluckman from the bottom of my heart. I was so full of this film at the time that to be able to discuss it with the two women who did so much to bring it back to attention was wonderful. They were also the only physical link I had to Mirchen. Their persistence in trying to interview the star has left us with the clearest, most detailed account of much that went on behind the scenes of making of this movie. So thank you to them from all of us.
but I have other people to thank as well. And a little bit like Machen in uniform, there are also a number of men behind the scenes. Thank you above all to Mark Lingwood, who has listened to my voice for hours while recording and editing this podcast series. Together we plan something more produced, shall we say, something with more voices and effects. But in the end, he just wanted to let me tell the story unadorned. I must also thank technical expert Francis Nutbeam Webber for making this series sound so clear and intimate, just as we planned, and for Timothy Bond, who composed that brilliant closing theme you're about to hear one last time. Also, I needed another pair of ears to peer review, and those ears belong to history teacher and writer Simon Basket, who was taken on this role without any complaint and has ensured that I didn't wake in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. Finally, I want to thank my family for letting me drag them to Berlin. It wasn't such a hardship, they still have very happy memories, and for putting up with me tapping away for years as I've researched this rather unique story. And a very, very heartfelt thank you to everyone who has come along on the Machen journey with me and given their time to listening to the story of the women who made a movie masterpiece. The Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Berkey. It was directed by Mark Lindwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber and original music composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions.